he asked me uh, if I would come and share my testimony with y'all. Um, for the longest time, I had uh, I was kind of not really ashamed of my testimony, but I was I didn't feel I had a very effective testimony um, uh, because I didn't really I wasn't saved from a life of uh, sex and partying and drugs and alcohol and things like that. Uh, well, I didn't go through it and then was turned away from it um, because of God's grace. Uh, but in a way, I was saved from that life because uh, when I was nine years old, I accepted Jesus uh, as my Savior. Um, I remember I was sitting in my parents' bedroom, sitting on the bed with them, and uh, we were just talking one night, and they, they asked me, they said, do you... Uh, do you, do you understand what Jesus did for you? And, I, and you know, we just had a conversation, and uh, I came to realize that, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner and that uh, there's nothing I can do to, to save myself. So when I was nine years old, I accepted Jesus into my life. And so um, growing up, I, um, I learned at an early age to put my trust in God and to follow the ways that he has for me. Um, it was tough a lot of the times because... I had the selfish desire in my heart, which all of us have, and so it was very, very tough, but um, I came to the realization not too long ago, actually, about seven, eight months ago, that just because I didn't go through a crazy life and God saved me from it, um, I have a testimony that um, I'm proud of now uh, when I think about it because God saved me from going through uh, a life like that, and uh, I was able to live my life uh, for Christ from an early age, and um, most of y'all know me, um, and for y those of y'all that don't, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up, uh, my dad's been a youth minister all my life, well he was for the first 10 years of my life, and then he became the pastor out at Silverina, and he's been there ever since. So I've grown up in and around a Christian family in a Christian environment, and so I was able to see from an early age what... Uh, what it meant to be a Christian, and so, like I said, I accepted Christ when I was nine, um, and with uh, my family being uh, strong Christians, I was able to be encouraged and uh, shown the right way of, and really, really seek God in everything, and um, so growing up, like I said, you know, uh, what my, li my life may have looked good, uh, growing up, but I had my own struggles. Everybody has their own struggles. Uh, but where where I really learned to really put my trust in God wasn't uh, in many situations growing up, although I did put my trust in God, but the main thing that really sticks with me is whenever I enter the call to ministry. Um, most of y'all know, uh, went to Wesson, played golf for Wesson High School, went on to play two years at Colian, and uh, through that time, I really felt like I wanted to do, uh, be a golf pro, run a golf course, things like that. I love golf so much. Um, if you knew me, if you wanted to find me, um, you can ask most people in here. I was either on the golf course playing, on the golf course working, or at my house working on my golf game by watching TV, uh, watching golf tournaments, watching uh, instructional shows, or outside hitting golf balls. So whatever I did, I eat, slate, slept, drank, breathed golf. Um, if it had anything to do with golf around here, I was doing it. Um, and so it, golf became 
uh, an idol to me. Even though Christ was my Savior, golf was an idol. Uh, I didn't think about God. Uh, whenever I wanted to find happiness, I went to the golf course. Uh, so, you know, that's what I wanted to do. My daddy asked me all the time whenever I decided that I wanted to be a golf pro and go to school for that. He said, have you, have you really prayed about this? Do you feel like this is what God's wanting you to do? And even though I hadn't, I just told him real flippantly, yeah, yeah, I prayed about it. You know, I feel like this is what God wants me to do. You know, of course. Why else would I be having all these opportunities come to me, play for school and different things like that? And, uh, and so went through on four or five years uh, with that mindset. And then uh, when I got to Mississippi State, uh, started the golf management program. God really, um, I say, he hit me in the face. Uh, and God brought me to a point to show me that I was doing what I wanted to do and not what he wanted me to do, so much to the point to where um, I lost all desire for golf. I didn't want to play it as much anymore. Very few times, it became a job to me and not something I love to do. I didn't watch it. I didn't want to talk about it. All my buddies were talking about all the latest clubs that were out and all the different players on the tour, you know. And I just, like, I don't even care anymore, really. And um, so it, it took God... Um, really taking that desire away from me and my love for golf for me to grasp the idea that, you know, maybe this isn't what God wants me to do. Maybe this is what I want to do. And so he, he broke me to that point to where I would turn to him. And so dropped out of the golf management program just a few months into it up there. Like, that's how much I'd grown to dislike golf that quick because uh, it happened really quickly. So I started uh, pursuing a marketing degree just because it was the closest thing to a golf management uh, degree. Going through that, and you know, the whole time I was in it, um, I kept thinking to myself, well, what in the world am I going to do with this degree? I, haven't, I don't want to do anything with this degree, but I kept on going anyway. Um, and in uh, February of, I think, 2012, or, yeah, 2012, February 2012, I, um, I answered the call to, to ministry, and one of the things that led me to that point was I was reading one day, and I was uh, reading about through the story of where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and in Luke twenty two forty two, 42, um, to set the background a little bit, he was getting ready, uh, he knew he was about to be uh, arrested and crucified, and so him and his disciples went uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he went and prayed to God, and this is what he said in uh, verse 42. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Um, what what really grabbed me there was whenever he said, not my will, but your will be done. Um, and you know, that really that really struck me because God, even Jesus was saying, you know, even though Jesus is God, he was saying, God, don't let me, my, my flesh desires right now, take over me because I don't want to feel the pain and I don't want to die this death. He said, you know, this is something I need to do, and I know I need to do it. So don't let me and my desires overcome what I know you have called me to do. And um, so I, I just really made that my own prayer. You know, God, don't let my will be done. Don't let me chase my desires, but show me what your desires are and your will is for me. And so through that, um, I recognize the call to ministry. I feel like I've been called to ministry since I was in fourth grade. When I was in fourth grade, uh, Miss Ard's class at Brookhaven Academy, we had to write down what we wanted to do and draw a picture for what we wanted to do with our life and uh, our career. And in fourth grade, I wrote, I want to be a preacher. 
And I, and ever since that point, up until I answered the call, I kept saying, you know, I don't know. That's what, that's what my dad does. That's not me. That's my daddy. Um, but uh, I really recognized God showed me that, you know what, that is what he wants me to do with my life. And so through uh, making that my prayer, you know, God, don't let my will be done, but let your will be done. God really showed me that he wanted me to be in ministry. And, um, you know, too many times throughout life, even us as Christians, we follow our desires. We, we're like, oh, this is this has got to be what God wants me to do because, um, you know, doors are opening for me. This is what I want where I must be supposed to go because all these opportunities are coming up with this direction whereas that may be I, I learned that was just a test to see if I was going to trust God or just follow my own desires just because the doors opened up and um, so I, I really encourage y'all um, uh, to really seek out God and seek out what he, he wants you to do rather than uh, just take the doors that open up and just assume it's God um, so thank y'all for letting me come and share and I'm going to turn it over to Brother Nelson now you would have us go. Lord, we are concluding this Sunday with our uh, with my salvation story series. And, uh, and Lord, I, I pray that, that, God, your spirit would fall heavy on this place, God, that there are lost people in this place. God, heal us. Heal us from the inside out. Help us to see our sin. Help us to see our putridness before you, Father, uh, and, and recognize that there is glory, that there is salvation, that there is forgiveness, and there is hope in Jesus Christ. God, would you show up? God, come and be, be you, Father. Fill this place, Lord. And uh, God, may we just be overwhelmed by your glory. God, would you just bless this moment. God, speak through me as, uh, as I seek to be honest and fair and true to your word and stand upon its authority but behind the cross that you may receive all the glory. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up the scriptures to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, there is a reason that I have decided uh, to begin each message with a testimony. And there's really two reasons that I did that. The first reason is that testimonies were a big part of the early church. Uh, and if you read Paul's writings about uh, the order of, uh, or the orderly worship, testimonies were a part of worship back then. And so I believe that it's a very healthy and good thing for a church to do is for there to be some sort of testimony given on uh, somewhat of a regular basis. All right? The second reason is I wanted everybody to hear and I wanted everybody to see that everybody's story is different. Everybody's story is, is unique to that person. God comes after and he seeks out sinners, but he does it in different ways because we're all in different places. We're all in different spots. And, and I think uh, Barry kind of hit it on the head there because I think what we look for and what we hope for and what we're excited about, we go to a revival to hear and we go to these big conferences to hear, is to hear about the amazing, incredible uh, transition stories, right? 
We want to hear about that drug-dealing, serial-killing, property-stealing guy (laughs) who turned his heart over to Jesus. And we just stand amazed and we are absolutely blown away. But when Patty Sue or or Billy Bob or Barry <laughs> uh, have been in church as long as as long as they have been uh, conceived or since they have been conceived as long excuse me as long as they can uh, as long as they can remember when they tell their story what do we do sometimes we just kind of yawn with excitement right <laughs> we just we just uh, it, it doesn't impact us in fact there was a time obviously not too long ago I've only been in ministry uh, for eleven years now. But, uh, but there was a time in, in my ministry where I was training people how to share their testimony. And, I, and, and for those people who kind of had this, this not extravagant testimony, this is what I would tell them to do. Because they didn't have that wow moment, I would say, you know, as you're sharing your testimony, you kind of get to that place where you need a wow moment. You tell them about something big God did in your life. It's skew from the story. You skew from the story that is telling about what God did personally for you in your salvation. And you skew to this time when God healed my dad from cancer. And you skew to this time where I was in an airplane and the turbulence was crazy and there was no way we should have lived, but God allowed us to live. And there's nothing wrong with telling these miracle stories and these really awesome things about God. But when in, in giving this advice, I neglected something that is very true. I neglected something about God, that there is something meaningful about things that last and are secure. There is something meaningful that, about things that last and things that are secure. There is something overwhelmingly comfortable about a God who says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. There is something extremely powerful about an enduring relationship. Think about it. When you were married for five years, how many people came over to your house to celebrate? But when you're married 50 years, what happens? The town comes, man. <laughs> the church gathers, the town comes, they throw a party. Because here's, here's what I want to say. Things that last matter. Things that last matter. And, but when we, when we take our topic here, when we take this topic of salvation, okay? We take this topic... <coughs> excuse me. Uh, we take this topic of, of salvation and we can... We, we, Put it with this thought that things that matter matter last. Uh, I think a question that always pops up in my mind at least, and something that may have been a burden to you, something that maybe you have struggled with, is, is this question right here. If once saved, always saved is true. And we started another message like this, but we're not going the same way. If once saved, always saved is true. If if I put my faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus promises uh, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so if I know that I have placed my faith in him and he is not going to let go of me. And then on top of that, I also know that God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. And we discussed both of these things at length two weeks ago. And we, we, we said both in affirmative. We believe once saved always saved we believe that god wants us to have an assurance of our salvation but here comes the question then what about the people who leave the faith what about the people who have been in the faith for years and years and years or a year or five years or 20 years if once saved always saved and jesus wants us to have assurance of our salvation what about these people that have left the faith These people who have made a decision and they have followed Jesus for a while, but eventually they turn away. Does Jesus at this point let go of them? Does he break his own promise that he's going to carry on to completion what he has started? Or, uh, I mean, that's, that's one 
uh, one way of looking at it, but what about the other side? Uh, if, if we say, no, of course Jesus wouldn't do that. That's crazy. Jesus is, is faithful. God is faithful. Even if we let go, he holds on. And we, we, we can say all the cliches and stuff that we want to say about it. But then on the flip side of that, does Jesus simply overlook that? Does Jesus simply overlook a, a life that says, I no longer care about God. I no longer think about God. God is no longer important to me. I am intentionally rebellious. I am blatantly opposed to God now. And then Jesus just says, I disregard that. I don't worry about that for the glory of God. I, you know, I'm, my, my Father's glory doesn't mean enough to me that this means anything. Where, where is, where is the, the balance? And so maybe a more biblical way to ask this question would be, what do we do with all the verses in Scripture that warn us about losing our salvation? What do we do with all those verses in Scripture when you're reading them? You're like, Wait, but I thought once saved always... I don't, Something's not clicking. So let's review real quick, all right? Uh, <laughs> I titled this, uh, this first point, A Biblical Conundrum. <laughs> uh, so we have our eternal assurance verses, okay? We discussed, we discussed three or four two weeks ago. Here's three or four more. John 10, 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, okay? And so Jesus says, I got you. No one can take you, all right? John six thirty nine, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So God gives, gives believers to Jesus. He holds on to them. He says, I'm not going to lose you, but I'm going to raise you up at the last day. This seems pretty all-encompassing. Romans 8, 29 and 30, for, God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So if you kind of cut out the middle part of that verse, this is basically what it says. Those God those God predestines through foreknowledge, he glorifies forever. All right? Those God predestines through his foreknowledge, he says, I'm going to take you through the ropes, I'm going to take you through all the process, and I will glorify you forever. These are our eternal assurance verses. Or some of our eternal assurance verses. And then we get to the flip side. And we have these warning verses. We have these verses that seem to teach us the exact opposite of what we just read in these first three verses. 2 Peter 3.17 says, Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Why warn us unless we can fall from our secure position? Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, some would say, well, you know, in Christian life, sometimes we do drift away. But if we take it in context and keep on reading, it says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So he's talking about drifting away from your salvation because you are ignoring it. Okay, move on down to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. See to it, brothers. So we're talking to faith family here. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. All right, so a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Okay, not a true great characteristic for a Christian to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then finally, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. If we have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end. 
All right? And so we have these, these uh, assurance verses, then we have these warning verses, and then we also have this kind of, this little in-between kind of thing. These are promises about this, these warning verses. These are promises about losing or, or the potential of, uh, or a faith maybe that doesn't save, is a good way to put it probably. Matthew 10, says, he who stands firm, this is Jesus, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's a promise. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, what does that say about the person who does not stand firm to the end he won't be saved he won't be saved look if we look in the book of revelation now remember who the book of revelation is written to the book of revelation is written to persecuted believers it is written to seven churches of persecuted believers people who are living a hell on earth because of their faith because of their following jesus christ and uh, eight times in the book of Revelation, Scripture talks about those that over- overcome. Those that overcome. Those who stay the course. Those who take faith and hold on to Jesus and do not let go. And we see this final final mention of those uh, who overcome in Revelation 21.7. And Revelation 21 and 22, we're in, final, we're in the glory moment, right? When we get to those two, last two chapters, we are in the, you know, you will be, I will be your God and you will be my people and, and we will have a new Jerusalem and we will have a new heaven and we're going to have all this stuff. And so Revelation 21 and, and 22 are all about the end of the very end and our glory with God forever. And this is what he says in Revelation 21.7. He who overcomes Comes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So what about him who does not overcome? Because remember, this is written to churches. This is written to believers. This is written to Christians. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I'll be his God, and he will be my son. But what about the other ones? What about the ones that do not overcome? What about the ones that fall away so what we have to do is we have to combine these ideas because remember what we said uh, i think it was last week what we said last week was this is god's word and if this is god's word there is no error in it and if this is god's word there is no fault in it and if this is god's word there is no contradiction in it because god is perfect and he does not contradict himself And so what we have to do is somehow work these ideas together, that there is eternal assurance, but at some point there has to be a holding on. There has to be be some way that you don't fall away. And when we put these ideas together, we have to say saving faith always endures to the end. Saving faith always endures to the end. J.D. Greer says it like this, If we fall away, we will not be saved in the end. But since those who are truly saved can never lose it, we must conclude that a failure to heed the warning demonstrates that we never possessed true saving faith to begin with. How in the world can that be true? How in the world can that be true? We who have done VBS after VBS after VBS and seen so many children come and make a decision but then maybe not live that out. We who have raised teenagers and seen so many turn away and and, and face another direction. How in the world can that not be true? Or can that be true? How in the world can we have a faith? Here's the question. Can we have a faith in Jesus uh, as Savior that is less than saving? 
Can we have a faith in Jesus as our Savior that is less than saving faith? And the way I want to look, show you to look at it is, is kind of consider it like a wedding. Can we say a vow in a wedding that is less than truly binding? Can we make a vow in a wedding that is less than truly binding? I think the obvious answer to that question, considering the divorce rate even amongst the church, is that, yeah, you can make a vow in a wedding that you do not hold on to. You can make a vow in a wedding that you turn from. And if you think about it, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what you are technically doing is, is that you are making a vow. When you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, you are making a vow to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Him. Because that's the standard Jesus set. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is the standard that Jesus has set for us. And most of us probably in here have accepted this, even maybe without realizing it. Most of us in here, probably at some point in here, in, in our lives, prayed a prayer. Now there's nothing magical about this prayer. But it is a tool that the church uses on a fairly regular basis. We call it the sinner's prayer. And in this sinner's prayer, technically what we are doing is we are making vows. Every sinner's prayer that I've ever heard and all the ones that I lead people through goes something like this. Lord, help me to turn from my sins. Right now, I turn from my sins. What do we find right there? Deny myself. I am denying myself. I am turning from my sins. The second part is, is trust in Jesus. Then we get to the third part. All right, so I, I, I turn from my sins, Lord. I put my faith in you, Jesus. And now I give my life to you. And when we give our life to Jesus, that means we are taking up our cross and we are following him. And what we do too often in the church is we disregard the first part and we disregard the last part. And we say, as long as you have this, this faith in Jesus, everything is okay. Don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about lordship. Just deal with this believing part. If we can break our vows to our spouse, can we not any less break our vows to our divine spouse. This is not a failure on Jesus' part, but on ours. A little quirky saying brought to you by the letter F by J.D. Greer says, Faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. And this is an extremely important issue. This is an extremely important issue because how many of you have someone you love how many of you have a friend? How many of you have a brother or sister? How many of you have a, a child? How many of you have a spouse or a parent who has taken this path? How many of you are taking this path? See, I'm, I'm familiar with quite a few have, who have gone down this road, who have made a decision, but the faith did not endure. The faith did not last. Even in my own family, I have seen this. So the topic is crucial for their eternity. The topic is crucial for your eternity. And the topic is crucial for my eternity. So I want to take it a step further. And I want to see directly, what does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus himself say about this issue? And we find this in our passage of Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 3. 
says, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So the disciples say, that's great, Jesus. I have no idea what you're talking about. And so we skip down to verse 18. He tells us, he says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So I want to start real quick with with a, a, a basic point here that I think sometimes gets misconstrued. All right, and this is just an overview of that entire passage, uh, and this is this is a basic point. All right, some people take this passage because Jesus says in Luke eight eleven that the seed is the word of God. All right, and so so the seed being sown out is the word of God, and so some people take this passage and they apply it to Christians. Okay, they take this passage and then they apply it to, to all Christians. And they say, all right, here's the deal. This is a passage about how we respond to the, the commands of God. Some people will, will hear, the, hear the command but completely disregard it. And it'll be, Satan will come pluck it away. And some people will hear the command but it'll get choked out. Some people will hear the command but it won't take root. And other people will hear the command and really do something with it. And it sounds real preachable. It sounds really good. It's just not right. It's just not right. We see in verse 19, if we look at verse 19 again, it says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom. This is a message, this is a parable about the kingdom. That is, this is a parable about salvation. The crowd he's talking to, you go back to verse 1, is a bunch of Jews who have not accepted them into his heart. And how do we come to faith? Through hearing the word. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes through hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of God. So when Jesus says in, in Luke eight eleven that the seed is the word of God, there is no inconsistency here. This is a message about lost people and how those lost people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gives us four ways that they respond. First way that they respond is the seed along the path. Verse 19 again says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Now this person is the obvious lost person. This is the lost person who has no qualms being the lost person. Doesn't mind admitting that they're the lost person. This is when we look at the parable of the two brothers, right? And we have one brother who's real righteous, and we have one brother who's, who's running off, taking his inheritance and spending it and, and ending up eating in a pig, pig trough. When we, when we see this, this, this is that brother. 
This is the brother who, who just squanders the wealth and, and is, and is uh, just completely sinful and doesn't mind anything about it. And, and his heart is hard. His heart is hard. And when that gospel message comes on his heart, his hard heart, he beats it away. He beats that thing away. His heart will, is not being uh, penetrated. Okay? I do want to say this real quick. It's not that the gospel message cannot penetrate his heart. Okay? It's not that Jesus is incapable of penetrating this heart. But when the seeds of God's word are, are hitting our heart, but our hearts are so hard, before they have time to take root and grow, that's when Satan comes in. And Satan comes with a distraction. Or Satan comes with a problem. Or Satan even comes with a pleasure in order to remove our attention, to remove the gospel seed from our heart. So we have what we would think of, or whatever picture comes in your mind, when you think of a stereotypical sinner, this is what we have with the seed that fell on the hard path. Okay? Then, if you flip to the end there, we have the seed in the good soil, verse 23. These are kind of the outliers. All right? Uh, but the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And so this is the saved person. This is the person whose heart has been planted with deep gospel roots. And now their life is a continual harvest of spiritual fruit. And I want you to see, Jesus is pleased. Whether you produce 30, or you produce 60, or you produce 100 times whatever has been planted, Jesus is pleased. That means you don't have to be the super productive ultra-Christian all the time uh, to please Jesus. No, you just respond how God has allowed you to respond to what He has done inside of you. But this is how we are all to look. Every one of us, if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, our lives are to be producing. Our lives are to be fruitful. Our lives are to look like Jesus Christ. And so these are kind of our outlier. We have our blatantly lost and we have our blatantly saved. Then we have these two guys in the middle. Then we have these two guys in the middle that tie far better into what we're talking about. Talking about a faith that endures. These two guys in the middle kind of set up a scene that we can look at and maybe recognize and see a problem. See the seed that fell in the thorns, verse 22. It says, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. D.A. Carson says, This person simply never permits the message about the kingdom to control him. Life has too many other commitments that slowly choke the struggling plant, which never matures and bears fruit. This is what we would probably refer to as the rich young ruler type of Christian. He fits in. He looks the part. He dresses well, and he even prays at our potluck dinners. <laughs> he attends Sunday school. He helps with church work days occasionally, and everybody says, that's good people. Everyone looks at him and says, that's good people. That is a good person right there. But he's busy. And we all have busyness. And so we, we recognize he, he's busy. His plate is full, and so he can't really devote himself fully to his faith. He can't really give it all in because, because he's so incredibly busy. He, and he just simply has some, more th some things that are a little more urgent. He has some things that are on the plate that just need to take a little more precedence right now instead of, instead of God. It's some things that are just a little more important right now. Oh, granted, not in the grand scheme of things, but right now it's just a little bit more important. And the dev devoted relationship with God is important, but it's something that will come. 
It's something that will grow. It's something that will just kind of happen when, when these other things begin to fall away. So he recognizes it. He recognizes that there should be a devoted life to God. And, 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 he, and he should really, really, really commit to the church because it's good for his kids. Maybe eventually he does. But even then, it's never about his walk with Jesus. It's always about doing the right thing. And in his life, something always comes before God. So he's a good man. He has faith in Jesus. His plant has sprung up, but it dies. He is a good man. He has faith in Jesus, but he is lost. Move on to maybe even a, a better example of what we're talking about in faith enduring in verses 20 and 21. It says, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Now what we typically think of, if you're like me, what we typically think of when we talk about this person, when we talk about this seed, when we've talked about this over however many years you've been in church and gone through this parable uh, in your Sunday school classes and in sermons and all that kind of things, is we typically think of kids and we typically think of teenagers fitting this category. They give their hearts to Jesus and they are on fire or they are sold out or they are all in or they are devoted or whatever phrase that we want to heap on them to let them know how passionate they are for Jesus. And then, boy, they come like a bull to church, man. They are faithful to the church. They go and they do missions. Whenever there's an opportunity, they do missions. They are the first one to sign up for camp and they and they sell more than anybody at the fundraiser. And they are they are uh, they are extreme they are passionate they are they are happy they are overjoyed in their worship then the peer pressure comes along and the struggles come along and 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 that sort of thing and scripture teaches they turn from their christianity as quickly as they came upon it and the reason is they never had any roots they never had any roots they believed shallowly and they followed shallowly because it was all emotional. It was all emotional. Adrian Rogers puts it like this, God will never do his deepest work in our most shallow heart. And what does Jesus say about it? What does Jesus say about these type of people? He says, I did not entrust myself to them. I did not entrust myself to them. John 2, 23 and 24 says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Here's the point. Jesus is going about and he is doing miracles, and there is spiritual euphoria. Okay? If you've ever been to youth camp, you know what spiritual euphoria is. All right? There is loud music, there are bright lights, and there are people... Thousands of people singing the praise of Jesus' name. There is absolute spiritual euphoria in these youth conferences. And there is spiritual euphoria that is happening because of the miracles of Jesus. And scripture teaches they believe. It says he was, uh, they saw the signs he was doing and they believed in his name. Okay? So I want you to hear that. 
They had an experience. They had a moment. They had an excellent time of worship. They had an excellent time of talk afterwards. Man, group time after it was great because we got to talk about all that Jesus did and all that we saw him doing. Man, it was absolutely amazing. And I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in your name. And Jesus says, I do not entrust myself to you. Your shallow belief is unacceptable to me. It's all emotion. I want you to see, speaking to a church that is majority not teenagers and youth, that this does not stop with them. This does not stop with them. There is a man in my hometown of DeRitter, Louisiana, who served as a pastor for 25 years. Think about that. <laughs> man served as a pastor, served in only two churches, his ministry over 25 years. And then within the last couple of years, he has rejected the faith, he has disavowed God, and he has become a public speaker for the National Atheistic Movement. What's the point? What's the point? There is a faith that does not pastor says, this shows us that the difference between saving faith and superficial faith has little to do with the intensity of emotion at its beginning and everything to do with its duration over time. Faith that fades no matter how luscious luscious its first fruits is not saving faith. So our next question is, because I know we got them. I know we have questions, and, and you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna be settled if I just ended right there and said let's pray. And if any of you are struggling, if you've fallen away from the faith, you're not gonna be settled if we just ended it right here. So I want to address the next question, the next natural question, and this is for so many of you, maybe in your own life, maybe in the life of the the one that you love, and that is about backsliding, okay? Because that's that's our that's our default position, right? All right, you know, you made some kind of decision, and, and but but he's just backslid. I saw when he got baptized. I was there when, when he or she walked uh, the aisle. And what backsliding has become is a Baptist equivalent for universalism, is to be true. Backsliding has become our, our uh, way of saying universalism. That is, I don't want to think about the fact that someone I love, or maybe even myself, might end up spending eternity in hell. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a blanket statement over the, over the whole thing, sweep it under the rug, and pretend like it does not exist, and we'll call it backsliding. Does that sound good? We'll just write it, we'll sew it into the rug, so that, so that everybody will know what's happening really is they are just backsliding. But the problem with this theology of backsliding is it doesn't change the outcome. It doesn't change the outcome. When this world ends or this life ends, the outcome remains the same. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying there's no validity in the concept. I'm not saying that there's no validity in this concept of backsliding. We look at the story of David. David backslid. <laughs> I mean, we, we can say with confidence, David had a rough patch, okay? Uh, we look at... Peter, right? And we're, we're talking Peter the night of the crucifixion. God, I will never betray you. I will never do anything. Unless that little girl calls me out, then, then things change a little bit, okay? You know, this is, this is a thing. And the, and the reality is we have backslidden. I have backslidden. You have backslidden. And all that really means is that we sin. That we struggle with sin. And our, we still fight the flesh against our sinful nature. 
what do we have? What do these things have in common? When we look at and going back to our our uh, biblical examples, when we look at David and we look at Peter, what does their backsliding have in common? Let's check it out. Psalm fifty-one, verses one through four, and then verse fourteen. This is David's response after his affair with Bathsheba and after he has killed Bathsheba's husband and after they have had a baby together. Or, or at least got her pregnant, excuse me. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Going down to verse 14, Save me. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. We skip down, or we skip over to Peter and his situation and his uh, denial of Jesus. In Mark fourteen seventy two, it says, Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. What, what, is, the, what is the link between these two? What is the similarity between David when he sins against God and he is in a time of backsliding what and when Peter sins against God and he is in a time of backsliding what is the connection and the connection is both were convicted of their sin both were convicted of their sin and this is the reality of every true follower of Jesus Christ we will struggle with sin and we will struggle with backsliding as long as we are alive It is not an excuse, but it is a reality. But for the Christian, we have Holy Spirit conviction. We have Holy Spirit conviction. And conviction will lead us to confession before God. Confession will lead us to repentance before God. Repentance will lead us to restoration by God. And we will repeat this pattern as long as we live. Hopefully, of course, less and less and less as we mature in our faith. But the point is that when we are saved and when we are backsliding, God intervenes. God intervenes. He's not going to let you just run off the map. God intervenes. God holds on. Then like last week, we can test our faith too. We can test our faith. We can test our faith with the question of obedience. And are we more, obey, are we more uh, prone to obey or disobey God? Well, you say, well, well, but that defeats the purpose. We're talking about backsliding, okay? Well, then we talked about the test of love. Are you more loving toward your brothers in Christ, or are you more hating in the sense that you're not taking care of each other? Well, again, we're talking about backsliding, so that, that's a problem, okay? You can't just use that as the test that you're in the middle of this struggle, okay? Well, then we get to the final test, and this is the test, the question of truth. Where are you now? Where are you now? Listen, you may, or I may, or someone we love may have backslidden all the way down the mountain. When you look at your heart, are you still trusting in Christ's finished work through repentance and faith? Because that's salvation. That is salvation. 
few months ago, there was, uh, you know, we all remember, I think it was in February, uh, that Carnival cruise liner that broke down in the middle of the Gulf, right? And so they, had, they started having <laughs> all kinds of problems that, you know, are not pleasant to talk about. <laughs> and they spent a few of those unpleasant days out at sea until they finally uh, brought in two tugboats to, to go and push the boat uh, into dock in, in Mobile. And, and so this, this big, humongous cruise ship was pushed along by two tugboats and completely dependent upon these boats in order to get to dock. Sometimes I feel like my Christianity is broken down. Like that big old boat. Maybe you do too, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like my Christianity is broken down. There are times, just to be honest with you, I feel more like playing a game on my phone than reading God's Word. There are times when I'm more concerned about the TV schedule than I am about the spread of the gospel to the nations. There are times I don't feel close to Jesus, and I beat myself into submission just in order to pray. There are times that I fall into that same sin for the 10,000th time. Just over and over again, I struggle with that same thing. But what do we do when we feel like our Christianity is broken down? What do we do? Here's just the simplest answer I can give you. We still trust the gospel. <laughs> we still trust the gospel. On my best day, I am completely dependent upon the grace of God to sustain me. And on my worst day, I am utterly dependent upon his completed work. <laughs> and so, so there's, there's, no, there's not a significant change there. In fact, there's no change. I am still 100% dependent upon God. That completed work is the very thing that moves me forward to an enduring faith. It's like, it's like the tugboats. Jesus pushes me from behind. And I look in the past and see what he has done for me. And so that encourages me. That motivates me to go forward. And then, then like the other tugboat, he pulls me from ahead. And so I seek to love him as the one who loves me so dearly. And all the while, what I don't perceive is that Jesus is the one who is actually moving me. I feel like it's in my own strength. I feel like I'm working really hard and I have to get to get to dock. I've got to do everything I can to get there. But what I don't realize is that as a true follower of Jesus Christ, I'm being pushed and I'm being pulled and He is taking me where He wants to take me. Because He is not going to let go. Saving faith does not endure because of our strength or because of our willpower. Saving faith endures because... Jesus makes it last. Eddie Greer, last quote here, says, There is one who remains faithful even when we doubt. One who is a firm foundation when our steps falter. One who holds on even when we let go. Keep your eyes on him. He is faithful. He said, it is finished. Let's pray. God, I love you. And uh, I don't know. Feel a little scatterbrained, feel a little lost. Uh, maybe feel like we've lost our direction a little bit here. But God, I do ask right now, God, that that Your Holy Spirit would do something far beyond me. 
that you would reach us where we are. That's going to mean different things for different folks. But God, for those who do not know you, those who may have followed you in church their whole life and based their faith on a decision, but their, but their life and their faith has not endured. They have let go. They have let go of you. They say, say I'm done. God, I pray that you would help them to see that your word does not allow that, does not call that saving faith. Lord, they need Jesus. Maybe there are others in here who need to come to a, a reality that the person that they love is lost. That even though whatever decision was made at whatever point, their life is a blatant testimony to how they love the world and do not love their God. And so, Father, maybe, maybe the call this morning is for us to be real and for us to be diligent to not let these people continue to walk towards hell but to make a commitment and take a stand and say no not anymore I'm not accepting this general blanket statement of backsliding and I am going to be on them about Jesus I'm going to share with them about Jesus. I'm going to pray with them and for them about Jesus. Maybe, Lord, it's something completely different. Maybe there was one word or one phrase or something that you did that was just where somebody was. I don't know. Lord, I do pray by your grace, Father, that you would just just saturate this place with yourself. Lord, as we stand and we spend a little time in worship, God, that that is indeed what it would be even in this last song, but we would be pointing our hearts towards you in worship. But Lord, for those who are in this place who need to respond, Father, God, I pray by your grace, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would not let them go. You would bring that conviction. You'd bring that feeling, that awkwardness, that, that moment of, I don't want to let go of this pew. Well, there's a reason. That's sin, that's pride, it's holding on. God, would you draw them to yourself? Father, may they respond with humility and willingness, however it is that you would have them respond. God, I love you. Use this time for your glory. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing together and we're going to give you that opportunity to